what I'm going to do tonight is really try and help you come on board with where I'm going, what I'm thinking, and really where Margaret and I are headed as far as this topic goes. And so there's going to be a little bit more explanation as far as examples and things like that. We're not going to go deep into scripture where I normally like to go. We will have scripture, but we're going to really explore the topic a little bit because I really want you to understand that. So I'm going to begin here with uh, an example uh, from Ray Comfort. You guys may know who Ray Comfort is, the street evangelist. And it's actually an illustration about a parachute and flying. And if you have had any exposure to him, you probably know what I'm talking about. But this is a really good introduction into expectations. And we're not going to liken it to sharing the gospel, but we're going to think about it in the context of expectations. So it starts out. Two men are seated in a plane. A stewardess gives the first man a parachute and instructs him to put it on as it will improve his flight. Not understanding how a parachute could possibly improve his flight, the first passenger is a little skeptical. Finally, he decides to see if the claim is true. After strapping on the parachute, he notices its burdensome weight, and he has difficulty sitting upright. Consoling himself with the promise of a better flight, our first passenger decides to give it a little time. Because he's the only one wearing a parachute, some of the other passengers begin smirking at him, which only adds to his humiliation. Unable to stand it any longer, our friend slumps in a seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it on the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because, as far as he is concerned, he was told a lie. At Another stewardess gives the second man a parachute, but listen to her instructions. She tells him to put it on because at any moment, he will be making an emergency exit out the plane at 25,000 feet. Our second passenger gratefully straps on the parachute. He doesn't notice its weight upon his shoulders that he, can sit, he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped out without it. When other passengers laugh at him, he thinks, you won't be laughing when you're the one falling to the ground. Let's now analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. As a result, he was humiliated as the passengers, disillusioned by an unkept promise and embittered against the stewardess who gave it to him. As far as he, he is concerned, he will never put one of those parachutes back on his back ever again. The second man put on the parachute to escape the danger of the upcoming jump. Because he knew what would happen to him without it, he had a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart. Knowing he was saved from certain death gave him the ability to withstand discomfort of the chute and the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude toward the stewardess who gave him the parachute was one of heartfelt gratitude. So clearly, expectations had something to do with how they responded to this. One, expecting to have to jump to his possible death, was very thankful to have the parachute. One who was expecting to have a comfortable, wonderful flight, of course, was disillusioned and upset about the fact that he had to wear this. This analogy helps us realize that there can be 
right expectations and there can be wrong expectations. The facts are facts, but how we interpret the facts makes a really big difference. This is true when it comes to how we respond to life. We live in a fallen world where life is going to be difficult. Did you have anything that went wrong in your life today? Shall I pull out my paper and start listing off the things that went wrong, like the fact that Elisa is across the street printing off my chart for tonight? Okay, so this is just how life goes. It's full of situations that we don't choose, but then we have to respond. How are we going to respond? There will be challenges, trials, difficulties, hardships, inconveniences, temptations, etc. And as a matter of fact, if you remember what Jesus said <clears throat> to his disciples, he said this in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. You can be guaranteed of it. You will have difficulties in tribulation. Tribulation means pressing together. There will be pressure, essentially, is what that means. So the way we interpret the circumstances of life will determine how we respond to them. If we have a biblical understanding that enables us to interpret the circumstance or the relationships from God's perspective, we will be able to respond rightly. And here's what rightly means. Without sin. We can respond to the unexpected things that happen in our lives without sin when we have a right, uh, a right perspective. If we have a biblical understanding that enables us to interpret the circumstance or relationship from God's perspective, we will be able to respond rightly without sinning. However, if we have a worldly and fleshly perspective and understanding that does not mirror what Scripture tells us, we will respond sinfully. And so often that, thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, I needed one as well. <clears throat> so our expectations are tied to our desires. And our desires are, of course, informed by many different things. <clears throat> if our desires are wrong, our expectations will also be wrong. So I'm going to give you just a few examples here, and then we're going to kind of work them out just a little bit. So very basic, very simple. So first one, if I desire that my husband should love me by romancing me, I will expect him to remember my birthday and anniversary and to go out of his way to plan a special day for me. Okay, there doesn't have to be a show of hands, but how many of you have been disappointed on Valentine's, Mother's Day, birthday, or anniversary at some point in your marriage? <laughs> Why were you disappointed? Hmm, might have something to do with your expectations. So next one, if I desire a happy life, I am going to expect my circumstances and relationships to make me happy. Is that right? And then the next one. If my desire is based in the belief that I will reap positive outcomes when I make right choices, 
I'm going to expect things to go well for me when I do what is right. Does life always have positive outcomes when we do the right thing? No, it doesn't. So, what happens when my husband forgets my birthday and does nothing special to acknowledge me? What happens when I experience difficult circumstances and relationships that don't make me happy? What happens when I do the right thing and I still experience negative results? Well, likely I'm going to be disillusioned, I'm going to be disappointed, and I'm likely going to respond sinfully. I will probably, now you can pick your own thing here, but here's some examples. I will probably get angry at my husband, who I decide is selfish and uncaring. I may give him the cold shoulder or even withhold sex. I may get so next example, I may get angry or depressed when circumstances and people don't make me happy. I may even be willing to go to more drastic measures to find happiness, such as turn to alcohol, spend money I don't have, go into debt, or cut off the relationship with the person who is hindering my happiness. And then what about the last one? I may get angry, oh, excuse me, I may become bitter and resentful toward people or even toward God if I do the right thing and I still experience painful or difficult consequences. So this may lead to cutting off certain relationships. It may, it may be choosing not to read your Bible because it's like, I tried that, it didn't work. Or it may be even withdrawing from the church fellowship or from the church as a whole. I did the right thing and the church failed me, so now I'm not going to have anything to do with it anymore. So as you can see, having wrong desires for relationships, circumstances, or even God will lead to wrong expectations, which will in turn result in sinful responses from us. So I'm going to read another illustration, and this is where your little paper here comes into play, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But I'm going to read this little example, and it's just one that I made up. But you mommies with multiple kids, I think you'll probably relate maybe a little bit. So here's the example. You have an important doctor's appointment for one of your children first thing in the morning. Now remember, it's an important doctor's appointment. However, the baby didn't sleep well and was up several times in the night. As a result, you slept later than you intended, which immediately caused your day to begin in a bit of a panic. As you rushed around getting the kids up and fed before you had headed out the door, your toddler decided to be defiant and refused to eat what you offered him for breakfast. The minutes were ticking past and you realized you were going to be late. You decided to pack the kids into the car and deal with the toddler's breakfast once you got to the waiting room. As you picked up the baby to put her in her car seat, you realized she had a diaper blowout, which required a complete cleanup, including a new outfit. And you know how much time that takes. No matter how hard you tried to move quickly, the time kept slipping away. You realized as you pulled out of the driveway that you were definitely going to be late, but you hoped that maybe you could make up some of the time on the drive, you know, just a little bit heavy on the gas there. Unfortunately, that was not to be. 
Some tree trimmers had had the road blocked and cars were being directed only a few at a time past the work zone. Your precious moments were evaporating into thin air. By the time you finally got to the doctor's office, unloaded the kids and entered the lobby, out of breath and a bit disheveled, your allotted appointment, your allotted appointment time had passed. The receptionist, the receptionist at the desk shot you a sharp look and dished out a curt response when you asked if you could still see the doctor. You were informed that you would have to reschedule and come back another day. Okay, so here is the million dollar question. What was the condition of your attitude when you headed home? So we might actually even begin at the very beginning. What was your attitude when you woke up late? <laughs> So here's where your little chart comes in, and I never know if my little charts and ideas are actually going to be helpful, but anyways, um, I, I just want you guys to be able to see the contrast between the right and the wrong to really grasp what I'm saying here. So we have the green is the right response based on the right expectation, and then the red is the wrong response based on a wrong expectation. So first of all, you woke up late. So here's your right response. I will do my best to get out the door as quickly as possible in a manner that honors and glorifies God. He knows what is best for my child, and I can rest in him whether we make it to the appointment or not. So that is based on a right expectation, and here's the right expectation. God is sovereign. He orchestrates my time. He will use this in my life for my good and for his glory. So if you have right expectations, that's going to drive a right response. Okay, so now let's imagine if you had a wrong response. So your wrong response is panic and fear that you will miss the appointment. Worry for your child if you miss the appointment, because remember I said it's an important appointment. Anger that the baby didn't sleep well, and now you're, you were so tired that you overslept. So that's your wrong response. Now what is it based on? It's based on a wrong expectation, which is what? My child's, I mean, it could be a lot of things, so I'm just giving you a couple little examples here, okay? So my child's well-being depends on this appointment. Is that true? But if we are misinformed, we are going to have a wrong response because our expectation is going to be wrong. So... Whoops. My uh, God is not doing you good in allowing you to oversleep. So basically, you have eliminated God's goodness from the situation. Okay, so now let's look at, the, at another part of that. Your toddler wouldn't eat, slowing you down, slowing down your ability to get out the door. Okay, so what would be the right response? Patience with the disobedient child, administer discipline, Still deal with breakfast at the doctor's office. That's just fine. <clears throat> okay, so what would be the right expectation that would drive the right response? Children are foolish, and discipline will remove it. There's an expectation. My child is likely going to misbehave. And so in light of that, I need to bring the discipline to bear. And also the right expectation the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So my anger directed at my toddler who is disobeying is not going to help the situation. So then what is the wrong response? 
anger and impatience at your child, yelling to motivate him to obey and to eat. I won't have a showing of hands to see how many of us have actually done that at some point in our lives. Okay, so wrong expectation. Why am I angry and impatient? Because my expectation is that my child should act like a mature Christian. But we do, right? Sometimes this is the kind of expectations that we have. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Okay, so the last one is the receptionist was rude and lacked understanding. And maybe that's kind of like the frosting on the cake. You know, you've had all these other things, and now the receptionist is rude. It's like, I just can't take it anymore. So what would be the right response to the receptionist? Kindness and patience, using self-control, ask if she might reconsider. That's perfectly fine to ask if she would reconsider to let you see the doctor. Apologize for missing the appointment. Follow her instruction to reschedule the appointment. So that is based on a right expectation. What is your expectation? I plan my way, but God directs my steps, right? From Proverbs 16, 9. Also, from Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. God is sovereign. God is in control of this, and I can trust him, even if that means my child does not make this important appointment today. And then the last one here with the right expectation, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. You have no idea who this woman is. Probably her conduct is fairly, maybe pretty good evidence that maybe she doesn't know the Lord. And so you have an opportunity to shine the light of Christ into her life. Okay, so then what is the wrong response? Responding rudely to the receptionist, raising your voice and demanding to see the doctor. And that would be based on a wrong expectation. I've had a hard morning. She should be understanding to me because my morning's been so hard. She should allow me to see the doctor because this is an important appointment for my child. And at the end of the day, I just shouldn't be treated this way. She, she has no right to treat me this way. So you get the idea here with the right and wrong expectations and how they affect how we live out life moment by moment. That's one little example of how much time do you think even, even passed in that space of time? Two hours at the very most, probably not even that much if you were rushing to get out the door. And all the ways that you had opportunities to think rightly and respond rightly or to have wrong expectations that then lead to sin. And think about if your expectations were wrong in all of those examples, how much sin is going on as you respond wrongly and respond wrongly again and again and again. Our expectations and, and the desires that drive them are massively important to how we live on a moment-by-moment daily basis. And I don't know that we always really truly think that through in such a, a specific manner, maybe. And it's really vital that we do that. So what influences our expectations? Well, the right expectations category is knowledge of Scripture and a desire to please God led to the right response. 
So in the wrong expectation category, our fleshly desires and worldly influences led to sinful responses. So when we think about the, the last one there, the very last, I shouldn't be treated this way by the receptionist. Where in the world does that come from? Every crack and corner of our culture. I should not have to be treated this way. Well, our culture very much influences how we think, whether we think rightly or whether we think wrongly. So with all that being said, now we're going to finally jump onto our outline here. So A, expectations can either be right or wrong. So if they're right, they will align with Scripture. And number two, so that was number one. Number two, if they are wrong, they will be motivated by, the sin, by our sinful flesh and influenced by our godless culture. We might call that the world. <clears throat> so clearly, our expectations can be right, meaning they align with Scripture, or they can be wrong, meaning they are motivated by our sinful fleshly desires that are also influenced by the worldly system in which we live, or we could just say our godless sinful culture. So I want to think about what influences our expectations. So B, our desires influence our expectations. The desires of our hearts influence, so I just kind of said that, but it's really the desires of our hearts that influence our expectations. Our desires can either be motivated by the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us if we are truly believers, or they can be motivated by the sinful flesh that remains in us even after we are saved. So I I know, especially we probably talked about this like the last couple of years, and we come back to these verses because they're so foundational and so important. So this may be very familiar to you, but we have to look at Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Because, as Paul is writing here, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. So who's he talking to? He's obviously talking to believers because he's not going to be calling an unbeliever to walk by the Spirit. So he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So you have the flesh and the spirit going head to head here. And so this is, these two things are what drive our desires. It's either the flesh that's pursuing and desirous of sin, or it is the spirit of God that is enlightening our minds to the truth of scripture, bringing conviction when we sin, and giving us the ability and the strength to live according to scripture. So number one, desires motivated by the Holy Spirit. So these are the two two things that, that influence our desires. So when we become believers, the Holy Spirit indwells us, giving us new desires, and he enables us to live in obedience to Scripture. Because remember, before salvation, all we could live out of was our sinful flesh. We were slaves to sin, entirely enslaved. But once Christ set us free through salvation, now the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us, and we no longer have to be enslaved to our flesh. Now, we sometimes choose to live like we're enslaved to our flesh, but we do not have to. 
So number two, our desires can be motivated by our sinful flesh. So even after we become believers, we still have that sin that remains in us. That flesh is not all of a sudden dismissed just because we become believers. So though we no longer need to be controlled by it, the sinful flesh still has tremendous influence over us, often enticing us right back into sin, right? And Peter actually wrote about this in Peter 2.11. He said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. The flesh is always waging war in us. And this is why Paul was saying, I don't do the things that I wish I did, and I do the things I wish I didn't do, because this is what's going on. There is this continual battle between the flesh and the spirit. So our desires can either be directed by the word of God through the power and understanding provided by the Holy Spirit, or they can be directed by our sinful flesh that is enticed by the world, or we may say, like I said earlier, the godless culture that we live in. So what I want to do uh, over the course of this study is I want to help you evaluate your expectations. We have to learn to identify what motivates our desires. Is it scripture illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or is it the sinful flesh? one or the other. And even as you guys go home and think about this over the next couple of weeks before we meet again, really try to evaluate. And even if you have to keep like a little journal on your counter and just like keep track of your responses and then go back and evaluate how many times was I influenced by my flesh to respond sinfully and how many times did I choose to respond according to my knowledge of scripture so that I responded in a manner that pleased the Lord? And you'll probably find that you wish you knew more scripture <laughs> because that's the thing. As we renew our minds, as we know the truth of scripture, then we have that to cling to when we have these unexpected things in life that come our way that we didn't choose, but now we have to respond to them. And we do not want to respond in ways that are sinful. Because remember, if you were part of the study last year, what did we talk about over and over and over and over and over again? What is the purpose of our marriage? To bring glory to God. It doesn't change now that we're talking about expectations. Our lives should always be bringing glory to God. And God will receive glory regardless. But when we are choosing to respond in sin, we are not giving God glory by, from ourselves at that time. And so that, that's devastating. We want to respond in a manner that pleases God. And so does this mean, now remember, okay, so because I'm saying this is really important. And what did I say? We have this battle that's going on. And so when you're wrestling to respond rightly, that's actually not a bad thing because that shows that you are seeking to live out of the power of the Spirit. When you just give in to your flesh and just free yell, 
at your child who's being disappointed or disobedient, or you just give your husband the cold shoulder. There's so many ways that we can respond sinfully. And when we just give into it, that's just the flesh just leading us right there into sin, taking over. But that wrestle when we're struggling to respond rightly is a really good indication that we are striving to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. So C, we have wrong sinful expectations. So if we have sinful expectations, we know they are influenced by the desire of our sinful flesh, as I've already been saying. But there is another influence at work as well, luring our flesh and enticing us towards sin. It is the influence of the world system in which we live. Our sinful culture under the rule of Satan appeals to our flesh, enticing us into sin. Satan works in the world in such a way that it draws out the sinful desires of our flesh so that we disobey God's word and sin against God. Well, I won't go there. I think I'm going to say that in just a minute. So, The Apostle John describes three main ways the world system seeks to draw us away from the truth of Scripture and entice us towards sin. So if you remember, this is actually your memory verse. So if you've got your little memory verse card there, it says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're just going to very, very briefly look at these three things. But what I want you to realize is that our flesh is so enticed and drawn to what the world purports as wonderful. And so it automatically is is drawn to those sinful things. And so we have to be very careful in the way that we interact in the world. We have to know scripture so that the world becomes less and less influential on us as we grow in our knowledge of who our God is, as we grow in our desire to worship him. The things of the world are not going to appeal to us in the same way that they did maybe when we were first a newborn Christian. So John MacArthur wrote this, Though briefly stated, those three things, just in that little verse there, those three destinations are of profound importance. So we have the first one, the lust of the flesh. That's number one on your outline. This refers to the sin that remains in us even after we are regenerated. The lust of the flesh refers to the debased desire to be sinful and to pursue evil. The sinful culture of this world appeals to the lusts. The strong, remember, lust just means strong desire. Doesn't necessarily mean it has to be negative, but a lot of times it's used in scripture because it can be negative. So these lusts, the sinful culture of the world appeals to these strong desires of our flesh that crave sin. These lusts result in the following list from Galatians 5.19. So um, if you're already in Galatians, you can just look at verse uh, 19 through 21 of of chapter 5. And I'm not going to go into explaining all of these things, but these are the deeds of the flesh. If you wonder, so, okay, so what, what does that look like? What are the things that we do when we're living out of the flesh? 
So Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then this little phrase at the end that's really important because that's not the end of the list. It goes on and it says, and things like these. So in addition to this very lengthy list and things like these as well. So these, this is what describes the lusts of the flesh. Okay, so then, and these are the things of the world. Remember, these are the things that John is describing about the world. So then we have number two. We have the lust of the eyes. So this refers to the things we can see. The sinful culture of the world appeals to us through what our eyes can look at, what they can observe, what they can gaze upon. This aspect of the world's temptations is designed to lead us away from the things Scripture requires, like contentment and satisfaction in Christ. The world lures our sinful desires through what we see, enticing us into sins. Think about, think about the things that when we see something, the kind of sin that goes along with that. So covetousness. We were just scrolling Pinterest, and then all of a sudden we had this terrible desire to go buy a new wardrobe. And then we noticed that our girlfriend was wearing clothes just like that, and now we're coveting her wardrobe. <laughs> like how quickly, just from our eyes. And think about this for a minute. Who created our eyes? God did. Did he create our eyes so that we could be covetous? Of course not. He created our, eye, our eyes so that we could behold the wonders of his creation. Remember, the heavens are telling the glory of God when we look at the heavens, when we see the stars, when we see the moon. I love going to the mountains. I love to be outside. I'd be outside all the time if I could. But I love going to the mountains because I love just the peaceful stream as it runs. I love going up there in the fall when the colors are all vibrant and beautiful. God has given us eyes so we can appreciate who he is through creation. Does it surprise you in any way that the world is designed to use what God created to be a wonderful gift to us and twist it so that we will use it for sinful purposes? No. Because who is the God of this world? Satan. And he uses the world to appeal to our flesh. So the world lures our sinful desires through what we can see, enticing us into the sins of covetousness, discontentment, greed, idolatry. And do you guys remember? I think I, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I remember. I I've mentioned it multiple times. Um, the book Competing Spectacles by Tony Renke, that is essentially what he is addressing in that book. This idea of competing spectacles, that, that the world is always coming up with something bigger and better and brighter for us to look at. Why? So that we will be distracted from knowing who God is, 
from, from worshiping God. So then we have number three, which is the boastful pride of life. So John MacArthur describes it this way. He says this, Such pride is the arrogance that arguably motivates all other sin, including the lust of the flesh and eyes, as it seeks to elevate self above everyone else. Instead of appropriate humility and gratitude to God, sinners exalt themselves and seek fulfillment in things that glorify the creature rather than the creator. So our misguided expectations that lead to sin are born out of those three things that that we just mentioned. The greater our desire for fleshly and worldly enticements, the less our desire for what pleases God and brings him glory. And so when you find yourself responding sinfully over and over and over again, stop and evaluate for a moment. Why am I responding so sinfully? Well, it's because I am living out of the desires of my flesh, which apparently are more important to me than actually living out of the truth of God's word. When we are more influenced by the world than we are by what honors and pleases God from his word, the more our expectations will be influenced by sinful desires, which will lead to what? Sinful responses. So I recently read a book that addressed the topic of unmet expectations, and the author proposed the idea that unmet expectations are rooted in discontentment. I'm going to tell you that I entirely disagree, and here's why. I would suggest to you that unmet expectations are in fact rooted in pride. Discontentment can certainly be involved, but it would be more a branch of the the sin, but pride would be your root. As John MacArthur noted regarding the boastful pride of life, he said, pride is the arrogance that arguably motivates all other sin, including the lust of the flesh and eyes. So pride is the thing that drives the other two things, this boastful pride of life. That's what drives the other sins. So when our expectations are rooted in pride, our responses will be sinful. Our culture excels in doing what? Promoting pride. From encouraging self-esteem, we could just say self and self and self and self, so I've only got a couple here, but anyways. From encouraging things like self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, oh, and then there's love of self, Relativism, you have your truth, I have mine, therefore I don't have to be wrong. To things like, oh, what makes you happy? Pursue what makes you happy. To then discouraging relationships that are toxic. Oh, poor you. Stay away from that toxic relationship. You're not going to find that in scripture, just saying. And then the world ruled by Satan appeals to our pride in every way. So Rachel and I have had many conversations over the years about this topic of expectations because we so often see it when we're counseling people and we wrestle with it in our own hearts all the time as well. This whole idea of of, um, unmet expectations and really like 
the attitude of entitlement. And we use the word entitlement, and that's actually a secular word. You're not going to find that word in the Bible. And we have to be very careful of words that are not in the Bible. Why? Because if we begin to think that something is outside of Scripture, then all of a sudden we're going to think Scripture doesn't have the answer. And so we need to understand when we hear psychology words like something like entitlement, we need to understand what that means. All that is is just pride, good old pride. So we often, oh, I just said that. So it is thinking, so basically pride is thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Pride elevates self not only above other people, because we, we know at the, at the root of pride, like we just think we're better than other people, right? And we want other people to think we're better than other people as well. But it's not only that we elevate ourselves in our own mind above others, we elevate ourselves above God. And of course, scripture has much to say on this topic. And uh, I'm just going to give you a few verses here and just basically to whet your appetite really quickly. But I think we need to see what scripture says about pride. So Romans 12:3 says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. What is sound judgment when it comes to how we think about ourselves? I am a sinner deserving of hell and God's wrath, but saved by the grace of God. I am no better than anybody else. And it always blows my mind. Like my own depravity blows my mind, which is pride. Um, just, just say <laughs> Because we don't truly see ourselves in, in, in the reality of who we really are in our sinfulness. And I was going somewhere and I forget where I was going. Anyways, so we'll just keep going to the next verse. <laughs> don't, don't get old. I'm noticing that's starting to happen more and more. I'm like, how long am I going to be able to teach if I keep forgetting things? <laughs> Anyways, you can pray for me. Okay, so Galatians 6.3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself when he thinks he is something, when in reality, what really is he? A sinner saved by grace. And to think that we're something when we aren't is to simply be deceived. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Being wise in our own eyes, being right, having the answers, thinking we know it all. All those things fit into that category. And then Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing. Nothing means nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then I had to, of course, include James 4, 6 here because this kind of just puts it all into really great perspective. And it says, but he, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this should be what our 
continual desire is that we would be humble. But see, all these things, like all those little examples with the wrong expectations here, those are driven by pride. There is, there's no grace for pride. And so we need to recognize the places that we have this pride where we expect things to be different or better to our liking. And then repent when we recognize the sin that is there. So we need to ask ourselves some heart-probing questions. So I'm just going to kind of go through this little list. I tried to come up with a bunch of different ones here. So anyways, and just be thinking about like how you maybe have adopted some of the world's mindset as I read through these questions. So do I think I deserve better in any particular or specific area of my life? Are there areas that I feel sorry for myself? Have self-pity. Woe is me. Can't believe that happened to me. Do I get angry when circumstances don't go the way I want? Do I get angry when people don't treat me how I think they ought to treat me? Am I fearful that I won't get what I want or that I will get something that I don't want? Do I think I deserve to be loved? Do I think I deserve to have children, to have a husband, to stay home from work, to go to work? Basically, do you think you have that you deserve something other than what your life is right now? That's probably the best way to ask that question. Do I expect that I should be able to complete my to-do list today? How many of you are listers? I'm a horrible lister. I love lists. But, <laughs> and they help me to accomplish. But when my list becomes an idol, that's a problem. And those expectations can drive how I respond to a list that doesn't get completed. Do I expect that I should be financially well off? Do I expect people to like me? Am I disillusioned by difficult relationships? How important is it to me to take a vacation or experience adventures on my bucket list? Bucket lists can get you in trouble real quick, just saying. You might want to ponder that one a little bit. How important is it to me to have my needs met? Do I think my needs should be met in order to love and serve other people? Do I think I need to be fulfilled before I can turn around and do something kind for somebody else? Do I expect my husband to agree with me and to think I'm right? Why do I fixate on past negative experiences in my life? So that's the end of my little list right there. But I think they're good things to evaluate and consider. Expectations can be subtle. We often don't realize we even have unbiblical expectations until all of a sudden we're in the middle of responding sinfully. And, then, and that should be our little red flag warning. It's like, oh, I'm responding sinfully. Something's awry somewhere. If we pay attention to our attitude, our sinful responses can 
be a notification indicating that we have expectations that do not align with Scripture. So we must learn to identify what drives our expectations. Is it pride that, that, desire, is it pride that desires to elevate self over others and over God? Or is it, is it a desire that seeks to glorify God at whatever cost is necessary to self? It's one or the other. Our expectations are often formed over many years. Our expectations, influences, circumstances, and relationships all play a part in what we grow to, sorry, not our expectations, our experiences, influences, circumstances, and relationships all play a part in what we grow to expect from life. After we become believers and the sanctification process begins in our lives, we then need to begin evaluating the desires that influence our expectations. Are they biblical or are they worldly? So I'm going to give you another example of expectations that just kind of are formed over living life. So as a child growing up on the mission field, I came to some wrong conclusions based on my experiences and offhanded comments that were made over the years of my childhood. These wrong ways of thinking led to wrong expectations, which then resulted in sin in my own heart. So many of the missionary families I grew up with were career missionaries. They arrived when they were young and newly married. They raised their children there and only left the mission field after their work was complete. Without intending to, the general attitude was that lifer missionaries were the elite in Christian circles. If you wanted to be truly the best Christian, you gave your life in service to God on the mission field. Missionaries who came and only stayed a short time were considered less worthy, while career missionaries shook their head in disappointment over their seeming failure when they had to leave the field. So my impression, then extending this out a little bit as well, my impression of pastors was that they were valued as a close second to missionaries, but still not quite up to the spiritual standard. So I don't recall at any point in my childhood any one missionary saying this, like what I ended up believing. I don't remember anybody specifically saying that or even teaching me this idea. But in my sinful flesh and in the pride of my own heart, it was the conclusion that I came to in my childhood. As a result, my expectation was that I needed to be a missionary if I was going to be of any real value to God as a Christian. I couldn't understand. When Craig refused to be a missionary, you can imagine how well that went. I judged him to be a subpar Christian. He just wasn't living up to it. I couldn't understand how he could refuse God's greatest calling and his opportunity to be a top-notch Christian. Ultimately, my desire was what? It was motivated by pride. I wanted to be a missionary so I could be somebody special, so I could win brownie points with the Lord and be highly esteemed by other people. This led to what? A whole bunch of unmet expectations that resulted in, of course, sinfulness 
discontentment and dissatisfaction with my life. And ultimately, I think for a while, even failure as a Christian in my own mind. Because, like, what's the point of living in the U.S.? Like, if we're really going to be good Christians, we should all be gone, guys. <laughs> that, was, that was my view. It was very distorted by my own pride, by my own misunderstanding. As I grew in my understanding of the word and in the character of God, I learned that my desires were based in pride and my expectations were unbiblical. I had to repent of my sinful attitude and responses and realign my expectations with scripture. The more I was able to think biblically, the more my expectations regarding serving God reflected a heart that desired to please God rather than gaining approval for myself. I don't know what your thing is. We have lots of things. This is just one of mine. I don't know what, what some of your wrong ways of thinking based on your own sinful flesh, your pride, your experiences, your influences, but we have to take these things and we have to measure them up to Scripture and identify in our own lives what are my expectations that are being driven by sinful desires that are rooted in fleshly desires, really ultimately by the, by the boastful pride of life. So my hope and prayer over the course of this year will be to help us uncover unbiblical expectations that are rooted in pride and that lead us to all kinds of other sin. <clears throat> so I want to help you learn to align your desires so that you have biblical and God-glorifying expectations. So as the difficulties and challenges and unexpected things of life come into your life, you are then able to respond in a manner that pleases the Lord in your workplace, in your church family, with your your. Uh, personal family, with your husband, whatever it is, so that we will respond in a manner that pleases the Lord. So D, we have biblical God-glorifying expectations, and this is what our goal is ultimately here. And I'm just, this is just kind of wrapping it up really quick with just a few verses. And maybe some of these are ones that we're going to have to like meditate on a little bit because maybe right out the gate, they don't sound like a whole lot of fun, but we'll get there. We'll talk about it. So number one, being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's what my expectation should be driven by, a desire to be that bond slave. Philippians 2, 5, and then verse 7 says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus was willing to lower himself to that. Jesus, the creator, the savior, was willing to do that. Should we not also? Number two, we need to be willing to be conformed to the image of Christ. That needs to be driving our expectations. Romans 8, 29, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That needs to be what's driving our expectations. When things come into our lives, difficulties, challenges, is this what is, is helping us respond rightly? Am I looking at, as, at, looking at it as an opportunity 
to be conformed to the image of Christ, to respond rightly with trusting God, demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Number three, am I striving for God's will rather than my will? So Luke twenty-two forty-two says, and this is, of course, Jesus' words, but this needs to be a reflection, really, of what we should be saying as well. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet, here's the part, yet not my will, but yours be done. And then number four, recognize, I need to recognize, I deserve judgment and wrath, and I need to rejoice in God's grace. So basically, we need to have a right understanding of the gospel in our lives and understand the purpose of the gospel and who we really are. So from Romans 5, 8, and 9, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We have nothing ever that should ever um, drive our desires to sinful expectations because we have been saved from the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. But even when those little tiny things keep coming against our will all the time, how quickly we forget that we have been saved from the wrath of God. And I need to remember that in those little moments when the receptionist is curt and rude and remember, but I am saved by the grace of God. And so I can respond to you in a manner that glorifies God. So just to give you a sneak peek at where we're heading in the rest of the year. This isn't, this isn't everything, but just a couple of things to kind of help you to understand where we're going to be heading. So uh, we are going to be addressing expectations as they relate to various different aspects of our life. So we are going to ask questions like, what are my expectations about God? Because if we have a wrong understanding about God, How's that going to affect our expectations? What are my expectations about others? Are they here to serve me? Are they here to give me what I want? What are my expectations about myself? Are my expectations about myself aligned to scripture? How do my expectations affect my thoughts and emotions? Ooh, that's a big one. And then... And then we're going to kind of go into a little bit of a different direction. And we're going to really think about the sin that is a result of wrong expectations. So that will be things like discontentment, fear, depression, self-pity, anger, manipulation, a lot of different things that result out of wrong expectations that come out of wrong desires that are really ultimately driven by our sinful flesh. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a direction of where we're going. And Lord willing, next time we meet, maybe I'll have that list for you. <laughs> no promises. 